Our studies in the book of Revelation have occasioned a question. How does God want us to worship him in song? In order to answer this question, we have adopted a twofold procedure. First, we laid a foundation of principle, namely the regulative principle of worship grounded in the Second commandment, briefly, with respect to worship, if it has not been commanded by the Lord God, then it is considered forbidden. And ultimately, I I do think if we could set uh, prejudices aside, we would see that um, we want a divine religion. We want the religion of Jesus Christ, don't we? And not just the religion of our own Inventing, I think that resonates with every Christian heart. And yet, as fallen human beings, we must ever beware, as Calvin says, we, in our fallenness, love to uh, invent a religion of our own. And we produce idols just one right after another. Calvin called the heart of man an idol factory. We just produce them one right after another. Ultimately, in worship, What God wants is the paramount question. What is it that pleases him? For our purposes, we could frame the question more narrowly. What has God commanded with respect to song? What pleases him with respect to song? And we must now endeavor upon the uh, history because the answer is complex. God's command with respect to song has changed from age to age. It becomes our responsibility as students of the word to observe the continuities, what things have proven stable, what things have stayed the same, and the discontinuities, what things have changed. Briefly, by way of review, we covered the first 2,500 years of the earth's history, nearly the first half of the world's history in some relatively brief considerations. This is the period of time from the creation of the world, roughly 4000 BC to the time of Moses, roughly 1500 BC. And we were able to draw some conclusions, a certain conclusion that there is no evidence of use of of the use of song in the worship of Jehovah during that entire period. No positive evidence that God was worshipped in song. We could also say that uh, for several hundred years, probably 500 years or so, there could not have been any song in the worship of Jehovah because music had not yet developed as a science. So worship would have necessarily been without music uh, during this period of time until the rise of Jubal, if you remember. We also made an observation that we should keep in mind as we go forward. Prayer existed long in the world before the musical art. Prayer was an ancient thing in the world before the musical art began to develop. Last week, we got a start into that second period, which we might call the Mosaic period, the time for Moses, roughly 1500 B.C. to the time of David, 
1000 BC. And we saw in Exodus 15, the very first example of the use of song in worship. Israel had just been delivered from its Egyptian bondage. They had passed through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. On the other side of the Red Sea, on the other shore, having witnessed the, dis the destruction of the Egyptians and having seen the corpses of the Egyptian army wash up on the shore, the people of God are given a song to sing in the worship of God. And could it be that this great and singular deliverance this great deliverance to which all other deliverances in the Old Testament will ever be compared. Could it be that this great deliverance also had assigned to it a new form of worship? A song. We noticed here that this song was commanded by God through his prophets. Moses here, who was, as we observed, the great Old Testament prophet with the possible exception of John the Baptist and Miriam who is specifically designated as a prophetess God himself provides the words by way of inspiration God authorizes the use of the musical instruments through Miriam which was uh, at the very least a timbrel but as we saw it could have also been uh, some sort of pipe it's the difficulty of that word that we normally translate dance is it dance or pipe or sistrum if you remember something like an Egyptian rattle very difficult to tell but all of this was authorized by God himself through Miriam also this song appears to have been limited to that particular occasion in other words, they sang it the one time, and it does not appear to have ever been repeated. There is no evidence that it was repeated, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the sermon, but there was no vehicle as of yet for its repetition and regular use. There, will, there won't be any structure set up for a regular service of song until the time of David, and no commandment for ongoing music at all uh, during the tabernacle and the wilderness wandering. No uh, uh, prescriptions or uh, institution for uh, the playing of music in song until the Davidic era and the building of the temple. So like I said, there's no positive evidence that it was ever used again in the worship of God and much evidence against it. There's no vehicle for its ongoing use. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 90th Psalm. This might seem like a strange place to go at this point. This is probably the oldest Psalm in the Psalter. It is designated in its title, The Prayer of Moses. We are going to spend the rest of this morning's sermon on this prayer of Moses, Psalm 90, it seemed to me as I was uh, studying it afresh, worthy of some special consideration, uh, 
first of all, special consideration because it does appear to be the oldest psalm that we find in the Psalter. In other words, it long antedates by almost 500 years the compiling of the Psalter itself. So it was an ancient thing in the world before the Psalter ever began to be collected. And so its inclusion in that Psalter is um, interesting in and of itself. And also it occasions a question. How did it get there? When you look at the rest of the Psalter, it appears that it was um, composed mostly during David's generation, but that some portions of it It appears that the Levitical school established by David continued to exist until after the Babylonian captivity and continued to produce some small volume of of songs until that time. But here you've got a a song that precedes that by some 500 years. The first thing I want you to consider simply as we read through Psalm 90 is just ask yourself, Remember Moses' history and think to yourself, what time in life might Moses have composed this song? The Germans say, what's it? Sitz im Leben, its situation in life. When when did Moses uh, compose this? Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with the flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it.
I want to come back to the context of this in just a few moments. But first, I wanted to point out that there's an interesting idea in the exegetical literature that I thought I would present. This certainly would make my job as a systematician much easier. There was an idea, an old idea, at least as old as Sadia Gaon. You might want to associate him. He was a Babylonian rabbi, early 10th century, so early 900s. He was called a Gaon. Basically, they were the leaders of the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Remember, this is 10th century A.D. Palestine has long been under the control of others, no longer primarily a Jewish land. The center of Jewish intellectual activity had at this point moved to Babylon. The Gaons were the leaders of that community. And people, Jews from all over the world, would write their questions to the rabbis in Babylon. And they would respond. Their responses became known as the responsa. This was evidence of not only what Jewish thought was like in the 10th century, but again, the Jews were very much attached to rabbinic tradition. It preserves for us trajectories of Jewish interpretation going back before the time of Christ. Sadia was a genius and a bright intellectual light in a time that's normally thought of as being the Dark Ages. However, Sadia was on, the, was on the wrong end of a dispute among the Jews themselves. For some number of centuries, there had been the rise among the Jews of what were called the Karaites. The Karaites, we might call them Jewish reformers. It was like a Jewish reformation. They wanted to do away with all of the rabbinic tradition and simply return to the Bible. They thought that the Bible, the Word of God, was the only source for faith and practice. Over against the Karaites, you had the vast majority of the Jews, which we might say were very much committed to their traditions. In some ways, it was the dispute before the between the reformers and the Roman Catholics about a thousand years before it happened in Christian circles. The same thing was happening among the Jews. Uh, Sadja was a great defender of rabbinic orthodoxy. So he, he very much believed in the rabbinic tradition. I bring up Sadja because his idea was, was that the 90th Psalm was composed by the Levites very much like the rest. And this is why I say if, if he was right, it certainly would make my job as a systematician much easier. Basically, he thinks that the reference here to Moses is roughly equivalent to the sons of Moses. And remember, Moses was a Levite, so this would be the prayer of the Mosesites, if you will. There is linguistic precedence for this. Turn with me, don't lose your place in Psalm 90, but turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. In 
in Hebrew, this is a, a very common thing. And so, um, Sajah's uh, interpretation is at least plausible uh, on uh, the first face of it. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 27, just the first part of the verse. And Jehoiada was the leader of Aaron. Now you'll notice your translation in the King James uh, Bible here of the Aaronites. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's he's the leader of Aaron. At this time in history, Aaron is long dead. The meaning is clear that it's the descendants of Aaron that are in view. So I just... Uh, is uh, pleading something very similar for the 90th Psalm, that these are the descendants of Moses that are in view. So you might take sons of uh, Moses or Levites that compose the rest of the Psalter. Why not this portion? And they might be called sons of Moses either because they were uh, descendants of Moses with respect to physical genealogy, or sometimes we might speak in this way, they are disciples of Moses in the sense that they're representative of Moses' thoughts and sentiments. They reflect upon their situation very much the way that Moses reflected upon his. And so in this way, they might be called his sons or his disciples. This also has precedent in, um, uh, in Hebrew. The sons of the prophets were not their biological descendants. They were their students and they shared their thoughts and their sentiments concerning things. Uh, when I first looked at this, I thought this is a very interesting, a very old and perhaps very fruitful uh, line of investigation. But there were a couple of uh, considerations that led me to reject this. First of all, unless you have some other reason the plain reading of the text is always to be preferred. In First Chronicles chapter 12, you have a good reason not to read it just according to the plain words, that there's a, if you will, a broader use of the word Aaron than to refer to the individual, which is impossible. You see, the impossibility of the interpretation drives you to uh, translate it Aaronites, the sons of Aaron. Uh, here, we don't necessarily have anything like that that would drive us to that. But what was decisive to me was the words following, that Moses is identified here as the man of God in the singular. And he's given this title elsewhere in the scriptures repeatedly. Deuteronomy 33.1 would just be example, but he's frequently called the man of God. And so I thought the plain reading here is certainly best. And then when you add to it that the circumstances here very much agree with a certain point in Moses' life, it seemed to me that there was no reason to reject the plain meaning. So in spite of the fact that it makes my job as a systematician more difficult, it seems plain to me that Moses is the author, the text affirms this, and the vast majority of interpreters have always taken this position. Before moving on to the context, I did want to address the epithet, the man of God. Because this is important for our systematic considerations. Here we have a song written by Moses, and he is now expressly designated the man of God, which in the scripture is roughly synonymous with the word prophet. 
Again, don't lose your place in Psalm 90, but uh, flip back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. You will remember the context here. Kish, the Benjamite, has lost some of his uh, livestock, and he sends his son, Saul, who would be king at a later point in his life, but he sends Saul to find the missing livestock. Saul is finding it difficult. As a matter of fact, they have failed, and the idea arises that maybe they should just return home And then an alternative idea arises, and this is where we find ourselves. 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning with verse 5. And when they were come to the land of Suf, Saul said to his servant that was with them, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. And he said unto him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God. And he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither. Peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Uh, His servant presents an alternative. Before we go home, why don't we go into the city and consult the man of God? The substance here of the man of God's function is clearly prophetic. What he says certainly comes to pass. Perhaps he, uh, by calling upon God, can receive some special revelation as to where to find the missing livestock. But we go on, and what what seems uh, relatively clear in verse 6 will become abundantly clear. Verse 7, Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. So we're told here that the terms man of God, seer, and prophet are all equivalent. And then verse 10, then said Saul to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. Returning to Psalm 90, we could fairly translate this, uh, or rather I might say gloss it, the prayer of Moses, the prophet, the man of God. They are equivalent terms. And it's very interesting that Moses' prophetic uh, office and capacity is highlighted here in the title of the psalm. We'll come back to that. Returning to the context, again, it's it's hard to be certain and for our purposes it's certainty is not crucial but can you think of a time when this would likely have been composed by Moses in the history of his life almost all interpreters agree that this seems to have been written during the period of the wilderness wandering 
perhaps perhaps not too long after uh, the spies came back with their negative report, Israel responds in unbelief. Immediately they are defeated in battle. They lose a great many men. And God at that time begins to wear them out in the desert. And isn't this what we find in the, the psalm? The idea of languishing life. That God is wearing us out. That we are spent in this place. And over against this, God is noted for his eternity. He is an eternal God. But man has a relatively brief life. And in the midst of this, um, as Moses we find so frequently in the history offers a prayer for mercy and restoration. We find this over and over again in Moses' history when uh, Israel sins, they're suffering the judgment of God, and then he prays that God will be merciful, will keep and uh, restore them. This appears to be the most likely point, and it certainly suits well. Every word of it seems to suit uh, that occasion. The form of the psalm here is designated a prayer. And at this point, uh, we come up against, again, the, the mysterious problem of the relationship of this prayer to the rest of the Psalter. How is this used at its composition? That's really the first question. Here is one probable use. It is altogether probable that it was simply uh, penned by Moses as a prayer and only used later as a song and included in the Psalter. Uh, There's certainly, um, uh, again here, we can only speak by, by, uh, by way of probabilities. We can rule out some things as uh, impossibilities, but here this is simply designated as a prayer. This is not the only uh, psalm title where you'll find this word, you know, prayer of David, this, this sort of thing. And as I surveyed those songs, and I'm going to do a more uh, extensive and more thorough, I, I did a survey and tried to look at all of them. It does appear that all of them could be understand in the, understood in this way, that they were uh, penned by David as um, part of his prayer life. He wrote his prayers down and only later gathered up and used as songs in uh, the Psalter. So this is one possible thing. Another, uh, another possible use was that it was sung at the time, but only by Moses, and perhaps only on the one occasion. We will see this as being part of the life of the prophets going forward, in particular, when we move past uh, Moses' generation and get into Palestine, we will find a wandering band of prophets that prophesy using music musical instruments and songs. We don't know that any of those songs were ever written down and kept for us, but we have to understand that that was, uh, that was a task that was reserved for the prophets. Only the prophets did it and participated in it. So much so that when Saul, on that extraordinary occasion, participates with the prophets, the assumption of the people is now that Saul is numbered among the prophets. The point is abundantly clear. This is not something that all of the people participated in. So that is another possible use, that Moses sang it on that occasion according to his prophetic office to the people and wrote it down 
And it only became a part of their, uh, their life of song when the Psalter was gathered and the vehicle for the service of song was erected under uh, David. We can rule out some things as uh, very improbable. It seems to me altogether improbable that uh, this was uh, uh, sung by the people in an ongoing sort of way for the same reason that it seems improbable with respect to Exodus 15. There's simply no vehicle for it at this point in the history. In other words, uh, the vehicle will be erected under David. The Levitical school will be established. God will command all of the musical instruments He will erect a school for the playing of those musical instruments. He will erect a Levitical choir, and then he will give them commandment to continue to sing these things. It becomes a part of the regular life of the church. There is no vehicle like that in the Mosaic era. Nothing like that commanded for the tabernacle. The uh, duty of the Levites is given in great detail in uh, uh, the book of Numbers, and yet they are never commanded to do anything like that. That was the development of a later uh, age. It is possible that, like the Song of the Sea, it is possible that perhaps they sang with Moses on the one occasion. Uh, But again, uh, it seems very unlikely that they uh, sang this in any sort of regular way until it was included in the Psalter and then became part of the uh, life of the Temple Song. But we'll come back to that. And remember, going, doing it the way that we're doing it, you might want to think of the lessons that we're doing as we first need to set the board. We need to get all of the information on the table. And then we'll begin to draw conclusions. But all of the uh, information is not yet on the board. I, I think that some of the things we, we are doing will be greatly confirmed probably in about two weeks' time when we get to Samuel and the School of the Prophets. That will give us a lot of uh, information as to what was going on even during this uh, uh, time of Moses and the way that these songs were thought of by the people in the succeeding ages. But in the meantime, we can draw uh, some conclusions, some things to keep in mind. Uh, a, A large point that we must not miss. If we miss this point, we will miss... Uh, a large point in this whole uh, matter and controversy. Notice that the matter of song, whenever it was sung, once again was furnished by a prophet. The matter was inspired matter. This is part of uh, our general thesis for the whole, but part of the uh, thesis for this particular age, which was that this was a prophetic activity. The songs were received by inspiration and during this age for the most part which is a couple of exceptions only sung by the prophets themselves the people of God were only included on a few uh, occasions we'll look at those uh, uh, we've seen one occasion at the song of the sea we'll see another occasion with Deborah in Judges chapter 4 and 5 now with respect to, to use as I said At this point, we must admit some inconclusiveness about the use of the psalm at the time of its composition. Once it's included in the Psalter, its use becomes evident. 
Our question right here is, what was its use at the time of the composition? And we have to admit that the evidence from where we stand in history is inconclusive. Is it possible that it was simply a prayer penned by Moses and not sung it in that age at all? That is possible. Is it possible that it was a prophetic song sung solo by Moses alone? That also is possible. Is it possible that it was a prophetic song sung corporately at this one time after Moses had prepared the people? That's possible. However, it's very unlikely that it was used in any sort of regular way until the Psalter because there was no regular service of song, no vehicle for its ongoing use. So there we are left with a um, with some inconclusive material, and even that is significant. I remember talking to a man uh, one time, and we, we will return to this. The question came up. We say, okay, we say if it's not commanded, then it's forbidden. But how do God's commandments come to us in the scripture? When we tend to think of commandments, we tend to think of commandments in express words. Thou shalt do such and such. But that's only one way that God's commandments come to us. God's commandments can come to us by express commandment. They can come to us by good and necessary consequence from a thing commanded. Or they can come to us by an approved example. Everybody admits the first, of course, if God commands us to do something, then we all get the point that we are to do it. But approved example has always been taken also as a, as a warrant for commitment. Basically, it's in narrative. When the people of God do something and there are notes of approval in the narrative itself, the behavior has always been thought to be worthy of imitation. God is uh, commanding us to do it by setting before us an example and then approving of the example. And also the good and necessary logical consequences from any other commandment are also said to be binding. So for to give you an example of how this works. I at one time had a man uh, present a, a particular kind of challenge. We'll come back to this. He said to me, well, let's say that I grant you your position on the service of song, that, that God gave it and we're only to do what God gave us to do and not anything else. He gave us the songs. But in that ancient time, he also gave music. But the music doesn't um, continue. You make up music to accompany the psalms at this point. Haven't you introduced a bit of human religion in violation of your own principles? And I said, no, of course not. He said, why? He said, it works like this. If God commands us to sing the psalms, anything that is necessary for the fulfillment of that commandment is also seen to be as entailed in the commandment itself. In other words, we must fulfill the commandment. Anything that's necessary for the fulfillment of the commandment is entailed in the commandment itself. If he didn't give us music, and yet he's commanded us to sing, then we must put some sort of suitable music to it, necessarily, in order to fulfill the commandment. So this would be an example of a commandment coming by good and necessary consequence. It's not been our invention at all. It's something that we needed to do in order to fulfill the uh, commandment. Uh, reason I bring all of this up is uh, when it comes to the idea of the uh, uncertain use of this psalm at the time of its composition, 
We can't draw it into any sort of example. There's no express commandment as to how it was used or how it was to be used. No good and necessary consequence can be derived from it. All of it is uh, uncertain, left in uh, uncertainty. And we have no example that this was ever repeated. So we, we must be very careful in taking this kind of evidence and trying to draw uh, rules from it when admittedly uh, it's uh, inconclusive. That might, that might seem very difficult at this point. Don't be discouraged because I do think that as we go forward, these matters will be, become clarified. We will visit these principles over and over again as we move forward. One final thing before we worship God in the words of this precious song. It does give us an opportunity to consider the relationship between prayer and song, which is, a, which is a very large issue in contemporary Presbyterian circles. Here we have a prayer of Moses that we use in uh, song. But what we need to observe from our evidence that we've already been gathering is that prayer and song, although similar in some very important ways, are not the same ordinance. There are things about them that are different. And first of all, I'd have you notice uh, once again that the institution of the two ordinances was at very different times. I pointed out that prayer was already a very ancient thing in the world before uh, God was ever worshipped in song. So their institution was at very different times uh, they are separate and distinct institutions, and with respect to the, to the worship of God, God gives us worship commandments in the concrete, not in the abstract. Some of you are not familiar with this debate, so let me, let me just sketch it for you. I didn't mean to digress initially, but uh, I want this to be clear. The contemporary argument in uh, some of the larger Presbyterian denominations like the Orthodox Presbyterian Church goes something like this. God has commanded us to pray. God has left us free to express our hearts in our prayers, in our own words. And so far, so good. This is the way that that ordinance is governed. God invites us to express all of our lawful desires and all of our different circumstances and situations to him in our own words, in our prayers. And that's true. And then they say, and song is simply prayer. Therefore, we can compose our own songs in our own words and use those things in worship. I'm going to provide a chart for you uh, so that you can see. What, what they've done here is they've taken some of the generalizations. When we talk about worship and we talk about the ordinances, sometimes we refer to them by way of summary in the abstract. They'll say, what are the ordinances? And we will say, the word, sacrament, prayer, and then some people will say song, something like that. Uh, the OPC is not wanting to admit that. They're wanting to make uh, uh, song a species of prayer within the general heading or category. But what we need to understand is that God did not command us to worship in the abstract. In other words, he didn't just say, Worship by means of the word, in whatever way you feel like it. Uh, worship by means of the word through interpretive dance or through a drama or in any way that you see fit to worship by means of the word. 
he commanded in the concrete, the word of God will be read. The word of God will be preached. And the congregation will worship with the minister as he's doing those things by their conscionable hearing. So he didn't command the word as an abstraction. He, he commanded the concretes. We just summarize it by the word because it helps us remember. But really what you have is three discrete ordinances beneath the general category. This is even clearer, I think, for people with respect to the sacraments. God didn't command sacraments in general and in the abstract. He commanded baptism and the Lord's Supper in the concrete. You see what sort of a problem you'd be, you'd be in if you just said God commanded sacraments. And then you felt free to invent whatever sacraments uh, you wanted. He commanded the concretes, not the abstraction. And so with respect to uh, prayer and song, you see, they're wanting to subsume song under an abstraction, prayer. But what God commanded were concrete things. So prayer uh, can be uh, uh, vocal. It can be silent. But when we're talking about singing, however you might conceptualize it, it is governed as its own ordinance by its own rules. And its rules can't be obliterated. So the question comes up, uh, is, is the service of song more like prayer or more like the reading of the word? And I tell you, it's an impossible question to answer. It's an ordinance that's governed by its own rules. It's like the reading of God's word in as much as we're singing God's word. It's like prayer in as much as we are expressing our hearts to God in spirit ordained words, which also helps with the shaping of our hearts properly. You see. But my point is, God doesn't command worship by means of abstractions. He commands worship in the concrete. Prayer and song are similar in that they are the expression of the people of God to their God. But song has been commanded in the concrete with its own distinctive rules governing it. And what we've seen so far with respect to it is unlike the prayer. So far in our history, it's always been given by special inspiration at the hand of a prophet. And in that way, already in the history, it is very different than prayer. We will continue to make these uh, observations as we go along. And again, um, I want to tell you, there's always the danger in this kind of teaching of um, losing the forest for the trees. Uh, in other words, we're taking such a particular look at so many things. We can, we can lose the general threads and trajectory of argument. If some of this you're not quite sure what to do with some of this material, that's okay. Uh, because these things... As we proceed in the, in the history, what we're always going to be doing is reflecting back. What does this teach us about what we already saw? So we'll be coming back to these things and uh, revisiting time and again their significance for the ongoing uh, history of development. Inasmuch as this is a uh, communion Sabbath, I thought it might be fitting for us to finish with the singing of Psalm 90. Verses 13 through 17 to the tune Kilmarnock.
we had opportunity to observe that in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded once again of the spiritual unity of the invisible church with her head and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded of the uh, unity of the visible church. We are reminded at this time of our brethren scattered abroad throughout all of the earth. Unhappily in this day and age, I I would say that um, things are not too much different for the church of God right now. Not so much different than things were during Moses' wilderness wandering. And our prayer during uh, this time must be altogether the same. Let us uh, unite our hearts with the hearts of the people of God in ancient times and ask for our great God to bless the work of the church again. We have entered into a languishing season. Confusion abounds. The visible church shows a great uh, deal of fracturing in spite of its uh, essential unity. And so let us pray that God would bless the work of his hands again and bless the gospel ministry again. Please let us rise. Verses uh, 13 through 17 to the tune till morning.